This is this is this is collected thoughts with Keyshawn Harper. In most cultures, when two people marry, they make a vow to each other, a vow that they will stick together, for better or for worse, through sickness and in health. Typically, for better or for worse is a given. No one goes through life without any sort of hitch, but the other condition, sickness. That is something that isn't necessarily guaranteed. Sure, sickness happens in old age, but by then, the other spouse is probably sick too, and is more so expected. But how a major sickness is managed is a vital turning point for a couple. It is a prelude to how the marriage would be sustained, or a warning as to how it would end. Tracy Spraggins was told by the doctors that her lupus would kill her if she was unable to find a new kidney. This news being even more devastating by the fact that the wait list for her kidney was at least seven years long, time that her husband PJ knew she did not have. As luck would have it, PJ's blood type was compatible to his wife's, which meant he could be her donor. The problem was he was overweight and had high blood pressure, two things that would make it impossible for doctors to deem it safe for him to undergo surgery. For a year, PJ dieted and exercised, not only for his health, but for the health of his wife. And in late December of the following year, PJ smiled ear to ear as he laid in the recovery room with his wife, both 70 pounds and a kidney lighter. He said it was the love for his wife that kept him in the gym and away from all the fatty foods that he used to enjoy. It was love that ultimately saved Tracy's life. Love. This is the same notion that was also on the mind of John Wise as he drove to the hospital to visit his wife of 45 years. Not too long ago, she had suffered three brain aneurysms that left her unable to speak. John stayed by her side, but as the days passed, he knew their lives would never be the same. That motivated him to go to her hospital room and shoot her point blank in the head. During his trial, John would claim that it was his love for her and the pain of seeing someone he loved in this state that caused him to commit such a deed. In a sworn written statement, John said, quote, I committed a horrible act while in a depressed and desperate mental state. I am truly sorry for what I did. Although I had nothing but good intentions, that is no excuse, end quote. Despite the apology, he was sentenced to six years of prison, but would soon die from cardiac arrest not long after the decision. Both John and PJ had two very hard circumstances they faced. Both claimed to love their wives, and both wanted to help them. But how can two very different actions, two very different results, claim to be motivated by the same driving force? In the last episode, we talked about these things people do for love. We mentioned how they're willing to degrade themselves and take away things that make them unique, all in order to fit some sort of box for somebody else. They want to be deemed lovable, But today I want to look at that prize that so many people sacrifice for. We hear so often that love is what makes the world go round, but many aren't taught how to express that love. In cases like John Wise, we say that he did what he did as a twisted expression of love. Stalkers, kidnappers, and even murderers all claim that this thing called love led them to do such heinous acts. Today we're going to explore how this positive emotion can lead to harmful acts. But to tell that story, we must begin, well, at the beginning. It all starts with the eyes. The eyes are the window to the soul. 
And there are also a window to a nice view, if you know what I mean. It's not vain to admit that we first notice people by how they look. We look at dang near everything before we decide whether or not to proceed further. We look both ways before crossing the street, and as any great chef would say, we eat with our eyes first. So it's not too surprising that some people even claim that they fell in love at first sight. Columnist Shana Alexander once wrote, The mark of a true crush is that you fall in love first and grope for reasons afterwards. It seems that at least most of us can agree that the eyes give us our first inkling of the idea of love. And if you don't believe it, your body gives you away. Whenever we look at someone we truly love, science says that our eyes even dilate as if we're trying to take in more of them. But it doesn't stop there. What you see is the first domino in the physiological process that overtakes your entire being. Your heart rate rises. Your palms begin to sweat. Everything in your body becomes out of whack when you're around that person. When you try to talk to them, your words are jumbled. And if you're trying to tell them how you feel, you'll most likely have to take a trip to the bathroom afterwards to settle your upset stomach. Love does an absolute number on people. And it makes sense because all of a sudden, you have all these bodily functions, all these feelings. At early points in our lives, these feelings are foreign and scary. The idea that the presence of someone could do so much to you is so exhilarating, yet exposing. A knot grows inside of you. You want the other person to know. You want the world to know. But how do you express that? As with all forms of human emotion, it's complicated. It's a lot like anger. We all have it. But for some of us, we like to swing first when we're upset, while others are more prone to talking things out. I think a lot of what you do with both love and anger is manifested in your natural tendencies mixed with what is modeled in front of you. As I'm sure you know already, children are sponges, soaking in both ideas and behaviors at a lightning fast rate. One of the most important things being the idea of compassion and empathy. Evidence suggests that the best way of teaching both of these virtues is by modeling it to children with compassion and empathetic behavior. If for some reason a child is not exposed enough to these concepts, or in some cases hardly at all, a disconnect can be formed. Why would I treat somebody kindly if I never knew that was an option? This is an important concept to keep in mind as we dive into the subject of showing love. Because of our upbringing, we all have different levels of how we express these things. So imagine what happens if you pair up people who are on completely opposite sides of the spectrum. Well, depending on their communication skills, you can get total and utter chaos. Not only because we don't know how to show deep compassion levels, we also can be stunted in receiving them. Then not being able to receive the love means that we can't articulate what we even want. Diving into human psychology of our wants and our needs can be painstaking and incredibly frustrating, especially if you're already trying to navigate an ongoing relationship. Luckily for us, in 1992, an American author by the name of Gary Chapman would bottle up receiving and giving love into bite-sized pieces that propelled a generation into figuring out how we could be better partners. Thus enter the five love languages. I feel like a majority of people may already know this, but in case you are unaware, or if you're hearing them for the first time, let me give you a brief rundown. 
Chapman proposed that for a person to feel loved and appreciated, they needed to receive that message in a way that suits them most. Think of it as how some people learn visually while other people learn audibly. Just as people learn differently, people also receive love differently. He separated love into five categories. Physical touch, acts of service, gifts, words of affirmation, and quality time. According to Chapman, most people in the world share and give love through these means or languages. Physical touch meaning that a person likes to know that you're there. They may like hugs, pats on the bat, or whatever action keeps you in close proximity with them physically. Acts of service involves doing nice things for people. For many, it's the thought that counts behind these actions. A simple favor like taking the trash out can symbolize what someone's willing to go through and do for your sake. This is the same type of mindset behind gift giving. Although this language could be often misconstrued as more of a selfish language, but keep in mind that if a person feels loved by receiving gifts, chances are they're like giving gifts and doing things for people as well. The next thing is quality time, which is being there with the person in a meaningful way. Just the experience of being together can be enough for these people, provided that you're 100% there and not on your phone the whole time, let's say. And finally, words of affirmation. This is being able to express your gratitude, your thoughts, and everything else through direct communication. Think of these people as those auditory learners. You can never say I love you too much because they want to hear it as a confirmation. By putting the complex idea of love into these five categories, Gary Chapman made a fortune with this book while making it possible for people to connect and understand each other on a deeper level. This was the cheat code that we all needed. There once was a time where we had to figure out what people like, and we had to learn how to categorize the things that we like. But now you can get this information on the first date if you have the foresight to ask. This changed the game forever. The honeymoon phase of a relationship is one of the most blissful experiences one can have. It's as if you are a character in a fantasy novel, exploring a new world that you've suddenly just been dropped into. Every moment is filled with wonder, filled with surprises. To you, that person is surrounded by a magical aura that rids them of all their flaws. And maybe for the first time in your life, you are seen that way as well. But there comes a time where it wears off and you're snapped back into reality. This is the phase that separates long-term relationships from mere flings. If you can make it through the mundane, through the arguments, and through the times where the spark just isn't quite the same, then you may have found yourself in legitimate love. The kind of love that makes you feel as though you have a place in this world. You have a person who chooses you from the billions of people in this world. They chose you. And as you're cuddled up late at night with the person you love, you become overjoyed by this thought. Until another thought creeps into your head. What if... What if, what if one day they decide that you aren't their person anymore? I mean, that, that would mean that, that all this time, all of this effort you placed in this person was wasted. You would be replaced. The gifts, the words of affirmation, the acts of service, the quality time, all those things you've grown accustomed to would be gone. For some, these thoughts create a debilitating fear of what can be lost. A fear that, as you can see, may have nothing to do with the actual state of the relationship. You can have this fear while things are good, and this fear can be strengthened even more if the couple is going through a timeout 
or a simple argument, the bliss that you've become accustomed to and the companionship that you relied on, one day you realize that is not eternal. As with any other thing, it dies. Of course, marriage is supposed to be the exception to the rule. But if you look at divorce rates now, well, you kind of see where I'm going with that. But that's a whole different story. Anyways, these thoughts, these doubting thoughts in your mind, evolves into obsessions. Love is indeed a drug, which means that you become addicted to it. And as with all things we're addicted to, we become fixated on getting more and more of it. And we fear of a day where we can't have it. When a person is in limerence, they obsess over their partner and have a constant need to validate their standing with them. Every action of their lover can be a declaration of loyalty or abandonment. Let's say someone in limerence asks you out for dinner and you've been with the person for a while. If for some reason you can't meet up with them, they think it's because you don't like them or it's because you found someone better to go with. But the sad part is limerence doesn't need for the person to actually be romantically involved for it to happen. They can have this obsession with you without you even knowing them. And this obsession and this longing is seen all the time when we look at stalker cases. The narrative going on in your head, the idea of a person being yours, is the only driving factor needed in the thralls of limerence. When we experience rejection or even fixate on the fear of being rejected by our partner, the effects can manifest in physical ways. Dr. Richard N. Gervitz, an expert in physiological patterning, explains the powerful and painful side effects of love and rejection. He states, quote, When you experience the prolonged pain of rejection, the healthy rhythm in your heart goes away for long periods of time. This is called vagal withdrawal. Prolonged vagal withdrawal changes your heart rate and rhythm, turns up the fight or flight response, causes organ pain, and can even cause constipation, headaches, and diarrhea, end quote. What this means is that heartache is pain, pain that is long-lasting and unyielding. And if humans are programmed for anything, it's to find ways to avoid pain. But how? A person's answer to that question will be the difference between continuing a loving relationship or beginning a path of abuse. We mentioned before the benefits of knowing a person's love languages, but we don't realize is the power you can give someone with this information. Because by giving someone your love languages, you're not only telling the person how you feel loved most, you also tell them what cuts deepest. The purposeful violation of our love languages is indeed psychological warfare. One could choose to reduce things that you need. They can give you less quality time or less gifts, but they could also choose your love languages negative, using harsh words towards someone that thrives on affirmations. Or harming a person with physical touch are just a couple of ways that people pervert and exploit the love languages of others. But one may ask, how is this effective? If someone isn't giving you what you need, isn't it just common sense to leave right away? Well, chances are, if a love language violator feels as though they're in love, then so does their partner. And remember, love is an addiction. In some cases, when you take it away, it only makes the heart want it more. The person can go back to the good times, the times where things were great, and the feelings that flooded their body during those great times. They don't want to believe that the person has changed and is no longer the person that they fell for. They endure the abuse time and time again until suddenly they get that hit again. 
the person who kept away affection from them for so long finally decides to give them a little morsel. Maybe it's after a huge fight, or maybe the partner just felt like they were in a good mood that day. But either way, they're given that love once again. And with this showering of emotion comes all sorts of feelings. And those feelings bloom into the belief that things will get better. That they that they maybe maybe they were just in a rough spot before. And that this was the beginning of something new, something greater. But in all actuality, what was happening was something known as intermittent reinforcement. What kind of sounds like a weird lab experiment is something that's actually practiced every day in this world. What intermittent reinforcement does is use our wants for rewards against us. In the eyes of our love language violator, if they provide too much love, too much positive reinforcement, they can run the risk of their partner taking it for granted and looking for something better. On the other hand, if love and affection was withheld indefinitely, then the person would also leave to find something better too. But in the middle, in this sweet spot, is where you give the reward in a sporadic basis. This way you provide a level of unsureness, a little level of suspense. This drives people absolutely wild because we are cursed to desire things that we can't have. This is exactly why slot machines are so addictive. The suspense of getting lucky builds and builds and builds until finally you hit the jackpot only for the process to start all over again. Constantly putting a person between the state of bliss and suspense is enough sometimes to keep someone in a relationship. But this only works when we're first conditioned to believe in the positive reward. And this happens in the very beginning when we talked about that honeymoon phase. And just when you get comfortable, when you think everything's great, that's where the script changes. The violator suckers you in with those good emotions from the honeymoon, then begins to toy with your emotions over and over again, ultimately making you believe that you're not good enough for anyone else. It ensures that you never leave and that they will always have somebody by their side. Because that is what this is all about. Avoiding the possibility of dying alone with no one around you. We can try so desperately to escape this fate that we don't care about the condition the other person is in. It doesn't matter if they're tired, they're beaten, they're bruised. All that matters is that they are there. I heard a thought not too long ago that stopped me in my tracks. It went along the lines of, if you truly love someone and you want their happiness and their well-being above all else, then is it right to thwart the possibility of them meeting someone else? If they choose on their own free will to be with another person, are we supposed to honor that? I honestly still refute this point, but I can't help but to admit that my only reason is because of my own selfish desire. Which I don't believe that this desire is necessarily wrong, but the places where it may lead us are indeed dark. When we ask someone to be with us, whether it's merely as a boyfriend or girlfriend, or if you're asking them to be with you for the rest of your life. What you are essentially asking is, am I good enough? Do you believe that I'll provide adequate companionship and value as long as we are together? 
That is an incredibly loaded question, and the answer can cause an avalanche of emotions either way. Love is a short yet heavy word that means a lot of things to a lot of people. If you were to ask five people, they would give you five answers. And in many cases, key aspects of those answers will conflict with one another. But at the core of what it should be, it's a strong connection and a bond between two people. When at its best, it can make a life worth living, colors more vivid, memories that much more cherishable. But as with all things, there is a dark side. Our pursuit of love exposes some of those not so good things about ourselves. It highlights our fears. It pulls back our defenses to show how insecure we really are. It is no accident that some of the most kind and some of the most vile deeds done claim to be inspired by the same emotion. It is indeed true that love is patient and love is kind, but it's also selfish. Thank you all for listening and until next time, take it easy. Hey, once again, thank you guys for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, please do us a favor and subscribe. And after that, give us a five-star review. Also, while you're at it, like the Collected Thoughts Facebook fan page. Or if you're more of an Instagram person, follow me, Keyshawn Harper, on Instagram. Thank you guys all for the love. And until next episode, take it easy.